0: News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now.
1: This is Mornings with Simi. Let's talk about the weather. Yes, we have a lot to talk about with our weather. It's been crazy for middle of April here on the South Coast. It is nothing compared to what they are looking at across the prairies, particularly in southern Manitoba, where they are looking at... An historic snowfall and historic like of huge proportions as much as 50 centimeters of snow is anticipated at this point, And they haven't seen this much. Maybe they said maybe twice in the last 100 years or so. So we thought, well, let's check in on our friends, see how they're doing there. Joining us now is Richard Clute, co-host of the news on 680 CJOB. Good morning, Richard. Oh, good morning. How are you? I'm okay. I want to ask that of you. How are you? Oh, What's it like in Winnipeg? Well,
0: I'm I'm doing a pre-shovel right now. You know what that is?
1: Uh, you know like what? On pre- the West
0: Coast, we have no idea what a pre-shovel is. Okay, so this is a little bit of snow. It's already gone, and it's on the ground. But we're expected to get so much snow. What you do, as opposed to shoveling it all once it's done, you get out there in the middle of this, and you shovel a little bit. Ah. So when it's all done you're not shuffling as much so I've heard of this right now yeah so it's good exercise but I expect that we'll be doing this about three or four times over the next 48 hours because uh depending on where this all lands here in Winnipeg the schools are closed both today and tomorrow headed into the long weekend so this is like a five day weekend So a lot of people love that. But this hasn't happened, school closures, in the Winnipeg area since 1997, 25 years ago. And behind that was the flood of the last century, where that was historic. So right now, it's very windy. The snow is to the south and to the west of us, where there's blizzard warnings going on. We have a winter storm warning here in Winnipeg but pretty much everything is closed. There are people working today. I suspect that the malls will be open because boredom will set in. But uh, right now, that wind is really starting to whip up. And behind this is minus 10, minus 15. So it's going to be winter here for another couple of weeks
1: actually. no kidding it sure sounds like it. so you're saying that you're already seeing blizzard like conditions like outside of winnipeg like what are you hearing about how much snow there is where the storm well, is
0: yeah it's packing right now 10 15 centimeters at this point in parts of southwestern manitoba that's tracking right to the mouth of winnipeg we're expected to get over the next two days anywhere between 20 and 40 centimeters other parts of manitoba up to 60 centimeters. This will wallop us, but it's it's a two-day long type of system. So right now I'm looking at this and thinking, ah, this is pretty normal snow. But for is this, it? at this pace and the wetness of this snow, that's the key thing. This is a Colorado low, and there's a lot of moisture in this. And to quote uh, Global's chief meteorologist, Anthony Farnell, this is the stuff that can really sock you in. You know, so,
1: Richard, I assume yeah. that you is something that like Winnipeggers take and roll with it because you know snow, sure, in April, but even it seems to me that Winnipeg is a little is very cautious about this.
0: Yeah, there, there's a there's a pride that in the middle of a snowstorm we can get out and help our neighbors. We are still that way. I would contend, though, with the pandemic, I wouldn't say we've gone soft, but I think we've gone a whole lot smarter. Because there was a time we wouldn't close things down until it was really bad. This is a pre-closure. This is officials saying, you know what, it's going to get really bad. And you can hear the birds in the background. I can't. The birds here are going, yeah, they're going, what the? Anyway, uh, (laughs) we're getting a little soft because of the pandemic. So we have places that would have normally been open pre-pandemic that are saying, you know what, it's not worth it. It's We're just gonna shut her down for a couple of May, days. Uh, maybe Obviously, it's smart. It maybe
1: it's smart. You don't want people on the roads. You don't want like we always see the cars wiped out and all that kind of stuff, Richard. Maybe they're just saying, you know what, not doing it this time.
0: Yeah, that's exactly it. And I think we finally got smart, but there is that Manitoba pride that when we hear about the situations that you have in Vancouver or in Victoria, and you're calling in all sorts of support, and we see the video of you sliding down a hill (laughs) somewhere, we look at that and we go, ha ha, they don't know how to handle it. We know how to handle it. And we do, but you know what? it has been such a long winter. It's been a long winter.
1: And it's longer.
0: Yeah. And so hopefully behind this, it's not going to be too much of a flood situation, not in the Red River Valley where we are, but out in southwestern Manitoba. We'll talk about that another day. But right now i got to get back to shoveling.
1: Okay, I'm going to let you get back to shoveling, but thank you for the update, and we'll be thinking of you.
0: Thank you. Thank Thanks, you. Richard. This is
1: Mornings with Simi. Big, big news. Bank of Canada, very, very likely this morning, in fact, shortly within the hour, expected to hike its key overnight rate by one of the biggest jumps that they've had. That is by half a percentage point. And when that happens... The Conference Board of Canada's chief economist believes that home prices could also start to drop as a result. That's what their latest economic forecast is predicting. So if it's more expensive for you to borrow money, it would mean your payments are going to go up. So if you have a mortgage that's coming up for renewal or let's say you have um, a home equity line of credit that fluctuates with what the interest rates are, You're going to be paying more. Your payments are going to go up, squeezing the money. And already everything is so tight with inflation going the way it is. But they're doing this to try to damp down the inflation rates with the way it is. So this is just the beginning, they're saying. This is a 50 basis point hike. That is going to be happening. And they believe this will cool down the economy, cool down the inflation rate. And they also think that at this point, they'll slow things down a little bit for the rest of the year. Further rate hikes will be coming in more measured steps. But they think that the overnight rate will likely hit 2% by the end of the year, maybe 25 And that will mean an increase in your mortgage rate, in your borrowing rate, whatever it is that you've got going on that you are, you know, using from the bank right now, that's going to go up, meaning higher payments for you. So we've been talking about this as an impact also remembering what interest rates used to be like. We've gotten very used to these rock bottom kind of interest rates that we have had, whether it was because of the pandemic happened, um, you know, post 9-11, we saw interest rates go down. We saw it happen again after 2008. It's used often as an economic stimulus to get things going again, but then becomes how do you control that stimulus by bringing the interest rate slowly back up again. Let's find out how this is going to impact you as well. Joining us now is Anne Gaviello, our Global News senior reporter. Anne, thanks for being with us. Hi, it's a pleasure to be here. So for the average Canadian, how will they feel this interest rate hike, do you think? Uh,
2: So, let's start with kind of the most uh, immediate impact, and that would be for households that have variable rate mortgages. Um, So, the expectation here is that uh, the Bank of Canada, will of course, find out those details at 7 a.m. Pacific time, Uh, the expectation is that the Bank of Canada is going to take its uh, benchmark lending rate, which sits at half a percent currently, and double it, bring it up to 1%. That's a hike of 50 basis points. Um, for, I'm going to give you kind of a a scenario for an average, and I put that in air quotes, household. So let's assume an $800,000 mortgage, five-year variable, all things typical. Um, That's going to take that mortgage rate from 1.15% up to 1.65%. And uh, bottom line, how that breaks down in terms of extra monthly uh, mortgage payments, that's an extra $172 per month over the span of a year. That's about $2,000. So those are the types of calculations that households are going to have to start thinking about, start making in light of what's to be announced a little bit later today.
1: Okay, that's a big, that's a big hit for an awful lot of people who perhaps didn't lock in if they saw this coming. That's right. And I should mention, um, so people, I mean, I don't have a crystal ball,
2: but that is what the markets expect. That's what uh, just about every economist and analyst that I've spoken to is expecting, uh, because the Bank of Canada uh, certainly does have to do something about the inflation problem uh, that we're dealing with right across the country, Um but, yeah, and, and just a little word of caution that some people who are, you know, in a, a variable rate mortgage might be getting nervous or spooked and say, well, there are more rate hikes coming and should I be thinking of making the move and going into fixed? My message to you people is um, just hang tight and uh, yes, there are more rate hikes coming, but right now you're still getting kind of a good discount. Um, so wait another year to a year and a half, and that might be the time where you start to make that move, though there is no harm in going ahead, doing a little bit of research to find out what exactly that would entail, what kinds of fees and costs that would come with.
1: Yeah, a lot of questions, I think, to people's banks, probably in the next little while. Um, Anne, thanks you for bet. your time. You bet. That's Anne Gaviola, Global News, senior reporter talking about the Bank of Canada interest rate hike expected to come at seven o'clock this morning. So within the hour. Yeah, if you haven't gone to your bank yet, are you thinking about doing that? Are you a little nervous about this? Keep hearing about the news, this interest rate hike. Let me know. Simi at cknw.com.
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: Check out this latest poll. This one was done on behalf of the BC College of Family Physicians. And what they found is that even if you have a family doctor, you're still worried. They said 40% of British Columbians who have a family doctor are still worried that they will lose that family doctor due to practice closure or retirement. Now, we already know almost 1 million British Columbians don't have or can't get a family doctor. So, let's talk more about this. Joining us now is Dr. Katrin Lovett, who's a board member at the BC College of Family Physicians. Thank you for joining us this morning. Thank you for having me. This sounds really concerning, and I know this is a fear that a lot of British Columbians feel. What are you hearing from family doctors?
3: So, Simi, that's, that's a good question. It's not an it's not an easy situation. So, as you said, from from British Columbians, we hear it all the time. Um, You know, they they can't get a family doctor. Can you um, take on my mother or my neighbor or my friend because they can't get a family doctor? Um, And family doctors are feeling it too. You know, it's it's heartbreaking to have a very full practice and you're doing your best to service the patients you have. And then you're getting these requests. You know, when I was uh, being a family doctor, I was getting these requests 10, 15, 20 times a day without exaggeration. And it's heartbreaking to have to say no because you you just don't have the capacity and I'm hearing that from my family doctor colleagues um, all around it's the capacity just isn't there right now
1: so what what happened? Is it just that more people are here looking for family doctors like why don't we have the capacity so that's um
3: that's a good question it's it could be part that more people are here, but I don't think that's the main issue um, you know it's getting harder and harder for family doctors to to be family doctors in the system we have and so what's happening is that the, the new graduates that are trained as family doctors are not going into being a family doctor in the traditional sense um, and the family doctors that are there are feeling unsupported and many of them are leaving their practice and i can tell you that from experience i was in family a practice of, you know, I had about 1300 patients as a family doctor for 12 years. And I had to leave my practice last year because I, I reached my breaking point. Um, and it was a heart wrenching decision.
1: What was that like for you? I mean, you said heart wrenching decision, but it, you have to, you know that like your patients are going to be disappointed and, and that must have been so difficult to come to that conclusion.
3: A hundred percent. It was probably the most difficult decision I've ever had to make. Um, I, I got to a point last year where it, it really came down to having to look after my own health. I got to a point where I had to decide, you know, do I let myself be healthy or do I continue looking after my patients? And I don't think that's a decision Well, anybody should have to make, but it's not a decision family doctors should have to make. I left. Thirteen hundred patients without uh, without a doctor, and and you know these are many people I've known for twelve years. I've I've known their families, I know their grandmothers. I was there when their children were born, um, and it's it's a hard thing to do. And and I know I'm not alone in that experience, but um, the system we have right now again just doesn't support us to be family doctors, which is what we want to do.
1: Right, Dr. Lever, what would have made a difference? Do you think for you to not have to make that difficult decision? What would have helped? Um
3: I think some some system change it has to be a broader um a broader change there isn't just you know one thing you know if i only had this one thing it it could have been different um the the job is becoming increasingly complex it's a very different animal than it was you know 20 years ago patients are um, our population is aging patients are becoming much more complex um there's Increasing worries with the rising cost of overhead and just the cost of doing business, which is not why any of us are doing this job. We don't want to be business people, you know, we want to be doctors. But it does weigh um, on the minds. It's um, becoming more difficult to access the resources and the specialists our patients need, which leads to an awful lot of administrative time. There's a lot of paperwork. Up to about 25% of our time in the day is spent doing paperwork, which as time we could spend, you know, actually seeing patients or with our families. Um, so some more support around all of those points um, would have been helpful and, and would have let me and I know many others just stay in the job that we love.
1: So when you what would help? So what would help then for the government to do? Is it to take some of that administrative, you know, obligation off of your hands? And how do we do that? That's an
3: excellent question. Yes. um, In short, if there was a way to unburden family doctors from the administrative um, stuff and the paperwork, um, that would be a huge help. Um, We don't like to talk about it, but improving the, the compensation model for family doctors so that we don't have to spend so much time worrying about Um, paying rent or or paying our staff or, um, you know, all those other things that come into it that isn't, strictly speaking, being a doctor. Um, That would help, um, you know, improving access to resources and specialists. um, That would help. So, but it all has to kind of happen together. It's um, none of these things in isolation will do it. There has to be really a full system change that happens.
1: uh, Yeah. That's what it sounds like, Dr. Levitt. I was going to say. It sounds like you're describing a complete overhaul in how we deliver family practice.
3: Um, an, over, an overhaul, yes. I mean, it's, you know, how, how it's delivered on the ground um, may not change all that much. It's more the peripheral stuff that needs to be better supported. But yes, there is an overhaul needed. The system has not kept up with, with the times and the changing demands of the job.
1: Right, and clearly people are worried too, aren't they?
3: A hundred percent um you know i I gave my patients about six months' notice um because I know how difficult it is to find someone else um but yes i I heard it all the time, you know why why are you leaving? Why are you leaving us? what are we gonna do um and there's many doctors retiring, and there's many doctors that are in the same boat as me where they're they're reaching this hard decision, so yeah it's it's a palpable fear you can you hear it every day from people and and it's a problem
1: do you think we're going to get that happening more like are we going to get more clinics closing
3: if nothing changes unfortunately yes i do believe there will be more clinics closing because it's just not sustainable
1: dr lovett thank you for your time on that this morning no problem. Thank you so much for having me. Appreciate that. Dr. Katrine Lovett is a board member with the BC College of Family Physicians. Uh, they recently did a survey. They found that two-thirds of British Columbians without a family doctor said that they can't find one. say they don't have a family doctor because their former doctor closed their practice. And by the way, that is a huge increase from the last time they had conducted this back in 2019. And even the people who have a family doctor, 40% of British Columbians who have a family doctor, worried that they're going to lose them due to retirement or the closure of the practice.
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: BC Children's Hospital and their foundation need your help. Why? A valuable work of art that had been donated by a BC-based artist has been stolen from their campus. Let's find out what happened. Joining us now is Malcolm Berry, President and CEO of the BC Children's Hospital Foundation. Malcolm, thank you for being here.
4: Thank you for having me. Good morning.
1: What happened?
4: We were um, the grateful beneficiaries of a beautiful part, piece of art that Marie Curie um, donated to a uh, uh, to us a, a few years back. In fact, in 2019, and then it was subsequently purchased by a donor. And only recently, um, because of COVID, installed on our campus, um, a beautiful bronze sculpture designed to be displayed outside, um, with the simple intent of bringing hope healing inspiration, um, to our families and children. Um, unfortunately then was stolen, um, about a week ago, um, only days after it was installed.
1: So where was it?
4: It was located, um, off our Oak street, uh, right by our Oak street entrance across from sunny Hill in a little garden space, a little space that we had hoped, um, to create a small sanctuary for rest reflection for children, for our families. um, quite simply, um, then uh, uh, cut off its pedestal where it was uh, proudly displayed.
1: So that's that's horrible. First of all, and what, what kind of security issues are there here? Like nobody saw this? Do you know when it happened? Like, what do we know about it?
4: We we don't know a whole lot. We we do have um, some video that show it being um, dismantled from its pedestal um, early on Sunday, April third, um, roughly about three o'clock in the morning. Um, oh. Beyond that, um, we know little. Um, we have we have uh, notified the authorities who are helping us understand what, why, and uh, it happened, and hopefully um, recovering it on our behalf.
1: Okay, so how big was it then, Malcolm? Like, if people suddenly see something show up, what like what would they need to recognize?
4: Well, I think you'd need to recognize a, a fairly large bronze sculpture, a big bowl-like um, piece, uh, weighs about 80 or 90 pounds, so not an easy piece to lift up, remove, or carry. Um, designed to be displayed in the garden. Um, and, you know, unfortunately... Um, while we know it was uh, extremely well secured, um, it's not an easy piece to, to move around or to transfer.
1: Right. It's not an easy piece to say that you have no idea what it is or where it comes from if it suddenly shows up and somebody wants to get rid of it.
4: No, very, very, very correct. And, and you know, knowing that it was one of Marie's, you know, from her vessel series, a very special um, piece that, um, you know, really has... Uh, understandably no value to anyone other than to those that would be able to enjoy it on the hospital campus. So, you know, I have to admit that it it is very disheartening um, knowing that this doesn't happen often, but that it it was um, taken off of the Children's Hospital campus and that our families and our children in particular won't have the benefit of enjoying it. It's, It's really distressing.
1: It is distressing. Is there anything we can do to help, Malcolm?
4: I think you are doing it by just helping us get the word out. I know we are so blessed to have donors that support us in so many ways, not least of which is creating that environment. So I think um, that the community can know about this, um, this, uh, this, this situation and, and be able to just have, have an eye out. But I think, you know, Uh, Beyond that, um, we're just um, hopeful that it shows up, um, returns, and that we can install it back for our patients and families.
1: Let's hope so. Maybe somebody, yeah, let's put some heat on out there so it does come back. Malcolm, thank you so much for your time on that this morning, and best of luck.
4: Thank you, Sammy. Be well. You too.
1: Malcolm Berry is the President and CEO of BC Children's Hospital Foundation. You know, there is a special place And you know where for the type of person or people who would steal something from the campus of BC Children's Hospital. Like, what are you thinking at that point? So as Malcolm points out, this is a very large piece. We're talking 80 to 90 pounds of bronze sculpture stolen from a bit of a sculpture garden kind of reflection area right in front of BC Children's Hospital across from the Sunny Hill Center there. And it would be noticeable if somebody tries to, you know, sell this for scrap metal, whatever the case is. Listen, you would know that this came from somewhere and it belongs somewhere else. So keep an eye out for that. An 80 to 90 pound uh, bronze sculpture. It is from the artist Marie Curie. You can look this up online too. It's Curie, K-H-O-U-R-I. It's part of her Vessels series. And if you see it, please let the Children's Hospital Foundation know so they can put it back where it belongs.
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: More numbers when it comes to our overdose crisis in this province. More numbers that are not good. They're horrible, actually. At least 174 people died in the month of February from illicit drugs in BC. That just keeps us going on the same trajectory that we have been going on for, what, six years now in this public health crisis. Here's what we also know. Six of the people who lost their lives in the month of February were people under the age of 19. Let's dive into this a little deeper now. Joining us is Lisa LaPointe, B.C.'s Chief Coroner, to talk more about the numbers. Thank you for being here.
5: Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me.
1: What did you notice that was different about the numbers for the month of February, if anything?
5: Well, we know that the uh, crisis continues. And as you mentioned, we are tomorrow, actually. is the sixth year anniversary of a declaration of the public health emergency into the harms associated with our drug market. And um, the... The availability of drugs now is more toxic than it has ever been. Uh, we are seeing, of course, fentanyl has been driving this crisis for the past six years, but we're seeing more extreme levels of fentanyl, uh, more car fentanyl, and now we're starting to see increasingly... um a really growing percentage of um, deaths where benzodiazepine is found. Actually, it's a benzodiazepine analog called tizolam. And really what that means is it's a sedative. It does not respond to naloxone. Um, it is highly addictive and it is really, really uh, wreaking havoc um, on attempts to reverse overdoses and, and causing significant harms to people using drugs. So the crisis is really just worsening and it's quite terrifying.
1: That is terrifying because you think the one thing people have said is, well, we have naloxone and we've got it out there and everybody's using it, and now you're saying it's progressed where we can't even use that.
5: Yes, that's right. It, I mean, it can still be used, but if uh, benzodiazepines are involved, it's often very, very hard to reverse the impacts of the naloxone or they are, sorry, of the fentanyl. Or the uh, first responders are having to use so much naloxone, they're almost putting the individual into a withdrawal state. Uh, which then the next time they use fentanyl, um, they are so much more at risk of dying. So it's just a, just a really frightening, frightening scenario.
1: Is the profile changing at all in terms of the people who are overdosing? Um, you know, we said that six people were under the age of 19. Is that unusual? Are we seeing anything change in that regard?
5: Yeah, that's definitely unusual this month. Um, we can, you know, if you can use the word fortunate at all in this crisis... Uh, we have seen that youth have not represented m- many of the deaths. We've had about one to one and a half percent of those who died have been under 19. Uh, but so this month was quite surprising where we had six people under six youth under 19 die. And again, we, we think that it's, uh, I mean, it, it could just be this month and over the year the numbers will, will remain similar to other years but we do know that the um, unpredictability of the market is is really uh, causing challenges and what we have heard is that some people who think they're buying cocaine um, it turns out in fact that there's fentanyl in the cocaine um, which again very complicated because if you're not an opioid user and you use um uh, you know, a significant amount of opioid hits your system, uh, then you have no tolerance, and that can very quickly get people into severe challenges and oftentimes death. So it's it's um it's very concerning. Um, we, we you know we've certainly given the message throughout this crisis for people to be very very cautious. Um, if you have somebody who can be with you when you use that is not using, please do that somebody who will provide naloxone call 911. But of course, the bigger system uh, changes that we need to see as well, that really, in a, in a big way to, to address the crisis and um, hopefully they get to an end.
1: Yes, hopefully we work on those too. Yeah, um, you talked though about, I mean, there's the ability to test your drugs too, but is it hard to get that message through to people who are perhaps using recreationally?
5: Um, that's a really good point. So, um, yes, I think you're right. People who are using recreation don't see themselves at risk in the same way, but they are. Because uh, you know, any time you're, you're buying from that black market, it's a profit-driven, unregulated market. There's no quality control. So every time a person purchases drugs, they are at risk. Of course, the more often you purchase, the more risk but drug checking services are fantastic where they're available. They are available, uh, some in the lower mainland, there's some in the Victoria area, but, uh, in the more remote parts of the province or even just the interior, the you know, more, the bigger towns or, um, the north, they are not available. And really, sadly, we are seeing the highest rate of death in our province in the north, uh, in, in the northern California area where they just don't have the same services.
1: So it continues then. So once again, then, Lisa, what is the message here? Is that we've got to get moving on having that safe supply?
5: Yeah, the message is that uh, we need to really quickly recognize, which I think is happening, that um, these are not bad people. They should not be punished. Uh, The law enforcement model has not worked and and brought us to where we are today. And that we really need to try to uh, um, provide safe supply across the province. There are some small pilot projects that are really doing great work but still not very available to people. And we try to move people away from that toxic market that is killing so many people across the province every month.
1: Well, thank you so much for your time this morning. We appreciate that. I appreciate it. Thank you. Take care. You too. That's Lisa LaPointe, who is BC's chief coroner, talking about the latest overdose numbers in this province from the month of February. And boy, the detail on that. Six of the lives that were lost in February were people under 19 years old. And she said that is unusual in terms of what they have seen in previous months. And also the fact that they see you're seeing different types of drugs involved here. I tell you, this it's a shape shifter, this thing. It just keeps changing. The drug dealers, the drug makers are certainly finding ways to uh, get around what we know, what law enforcement knows, and kind of expanding that. And it's an ongoing fight. This
0: is Mornings with Simi.
1: Are you ready to get back in a big crowd and watch some fireworks? What about the Honda Celebration of Lights? Is it coming back? Let's find out right now. Paul Reynolds is with us, the executive producer of the Honda Celebration of Light. Good morning, Paul. Good morning, how are you? I'm good, thank you. What's the big news? Tell us, is it happening? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, it is. We're uh, after a two-year
6: hiatus. We're delighted to be coming back. Uh, and it's going to be our milestone uh, 30th anniversary of the event. So a two-year delay. We're very excited about a very big year ahead.
1: Now I feel old because I remember like the first year when it started. So let's, <laughs> um, let's talk about what we need to know. When is it happening? Who's participating? Is it going to be different from years past?
6: So uh, the dates are July, Saturday, July 23rd, Wednesday, July 27th, and Saturday, July 30th. Um, We have not yet announced the countries. We're going to be doing that at the end of the month uh, on uh, April 28th. We have a press conference. We'll be announcing the countries. We'll be announcing some new sponsors that have um, have associated themselves with the project. uh, And as well, tickets will be going on sale. Uh, starting on the 28th.
1: So, so, Paul, was there... like You talk about new sponsorship coming in. Was there a lot of enthusiasm from businesses to get on board this?
6: It's incredible. Uh, you know, we've been doing this. This is the 11th of the year. We will have been producing the event. And the, um, the interest and the enthusiasm for the return of big events uh, has been... It's been nothing... We've never seen anything like it. It's terrific.
1: Okay. So is there anything that's going to be new this year?
6: Uh. Fundamentally, the show's going to look very much the same as far as the audience is concerned. We're doing a few new things with some hosting and hospitality spaces. We've got some new areas that we're activating for sponsors, but also for some music stages and things like that in and around Morton Park and the Laughing Men and that whole area. Um, But the the fireworks, you know, the the star attraction, of course, is the fireworks. Uh, And so those nightly shows are going to look similar to what they've looked like in the past years, although... We are putting a little extra something in this year for the 30th anniversary.
1: All right. You think people are ready for this?
6: I think so. I've, I mean, I've been talking to a lot of people for months and months and months now. And again, the uh, the reaction and the enthusiasm has been has been unparalleled.
1: All right. We'll see what happens. Paul, thanks so much for uh, bringing the news here with us. Thank you very much. Appreciate that. Paul Runnels is executive producer of the Honda Celebration of Light. And there you go. You heard it. It's back. Hasn't been on the last couple of years, of course, because of COVID, but it is set to return uh, this July to English Bay. So once again, huge fireworks, huge crowds, huge show. Are you ready to go? Are you going to be there? Let me know. Simi at CKNW.com.